Good evening. If you can please take your seats, we're going to get started. Please take your seats. Thank you. Thank you for coming this evening to the Astoria Livability Forum. My name is Allison Hart, and I've been asked to facilitate this important conversation this evening. Um, one of the reasons why I've been asked to do this is to um, provide um, a neutral party so that we can hear all voices and all views. And so I'm going to be moderating this evening both uh, with the panel and working with our questions and comments that come in from um, the public that's here this evening. The intention of the forum is to provide um, a discussion uh, area or place um, for very important and challenging conversations that also bring a lot of passion to this community, and so we really appreciate that you're all here. It's also to provide a context for some of the bigger challenges and issues and also resources that are available. So the people that we have here tonight um, are a balanced group that will provide many different resources. Okay, it looks like I need a sound check in the back because I'm getting the signal that um, in the back of the room they can't hear me. Okay, can you hear me now? Okay, good, thank you. All right, so our outcome of this evening is to develop an understanding of the role of the city and public safety plays with the important issues of the livability in Astoria. It's to develop also an understanding of the roles of the various organizations, um, both social and other, um, that are working on the important issues in front of you as a community. It's also to provide a forum uh, to get public feedback and input from all sides and to have all balanced views. What we will be doing tonight is we will go through um, a series of comments. We'll start with the mayor in just a moment, and then David Reed from the Astoria Warrington Chamber of Commerce will speak from the perspective of business. Chief Spalding and Sheriff Phillips will also um, provide some information about the challenges with some of the Oregon laws and the federal laws around homelessness and what can and cannot be done. And there will also be comments from Amy Baker and Viviana Matthews during that time. We will then have an hour for public comment and questions. Um, and we'll be doing that, and I'll explain in just a moment how we'll do that, and then we will wrap up. For public comments and questions, what we are doing is taking cards with your questions or comments. They'll actually be brought up to this table. There'll be rovers. Um, staff will be walking to pick up questions or comments that you have, and they'll bring them to the front table. And we're doing this not to, to vet out those questions we don't want to answer, but to make sure that the things that are coming up to the highest are answered right away. And we're really hoping for some challenging questions so we can have our panel actually work through them. And who we have at the table are Kevin Leahy with, with Cedar. We have um, <clears throat> uh, Janet Hutchins with ADHA on the board. And then also uh, Teresa Barnes with the Warming Center. And they will be going through. So if you have any questions or comments, um, please uh, write them on a card and bring them through. And again, there should be some staff roving with cards if you have some during the session that come up. So we ask that um, you please um, work with the cards. What will happen to the cards, we've had some questions about will, will they be public record? Yes, they will. All the cards, even if we don't get to your question during the session, will be given to the city manager. They will be posted on the city website and all of the counselors will review them and see them and they will become part of public record. 
So that's, and it's part of looking at what are the most burning issues for the community. So the questions and comments will be documented. We ask that you please respect the process and the speakers this evening. So tonight, we're here to have you here to listen and provide a balance of views, but also to contribute um, through the cards and questions. And also, I would invite you to potentially change your mind if a new view comes to you that you weren't expecting. I will be here to provide um, a continuity with throughout the session to facilitate the questions as well and to keep the flow of time. And our panel will actually provide information um, throughout the evening. I'd also ask you to keep in mind that we're all here because it's very important, the issues that you're seeing in your community and you all wanna be a part of the solution. So listen for all perspectives as we have a civil and respectful dialogue. Please listen for all perspectives and know that your view is important, but it may not be the same as someone sitting next to you, but we want to hear all views through how we address the questions. We also will ask you to be an inquiry, get curious about this, this topic that we're gonna address tonight and um, be open to any emerging thoughts or surprises that may come to you because you may learn something new that you didn't know and that's part of why we're doing the forum this evening. Um, lastly, I would just say we're going to have one speaker at a time and that will be through the panel and also why we're doing the cards um, throughout the evening. We all are um, responsible for the quality of the social interaction that we have this evening. So I ask that you respect the process and also respect everyone that's here by bringing your best self to this evening. Thank you. Um, so to start, um, I'm gonna ask the mayor, Mayor Bruce Jones, to come up and he's gonna say a few words and then we'll hand off um, to David. Thank you, Allison, and uh, welcome everybody. Thank you so much for being here. We have almost a full house and that says so much about our community. And we're all here because we care about Astoria, we love Astoria, and we want what's best uh, for our community. We may have different opinions about various policy issues, but at our core, we all want what's best for our community. And I would ask that as we go through some very difficult and challenging conversations tonight, we keep that in mind, that no matter where we stand on various issues, we all want what's best for our community. And we're here tonight to find ways to manage and to reduce the detrimental impact on our community, on our residents, our visitors, and our small businesses from the behavior of individuals. And individuals who collectively have accounted for thousands of calls for police service in our community. We've heard from you that the behavior of these individuals, and these are individuals, not a group and not a class of people, and it's a small group of individuals and a minority of individuals who have created a sense for some of our neighbors that some of our streets are not safe, that they don't feel comfortable walking in some parts of our downtown or on our river trail, and that, quite frankly, is unacceptable. All Astorians and all of our visitors deserve to be able to walk our streets without feeling threatened or intimidated, to enjoy our parks without being confronted. We have a right to demand that those who choose to live in our community respect a common set of community standards for behavior. We have a right to demand that people not leave garbage strewn about in our public spaces. And this applies to all who live here or visit here, regardless of their housing status 
regardless of their socioeconomic status. Tonight, we're gonna, we're gonna answer your questions about why we are seeing these behaviors and why we've seen them increase in our community. We're gonna talk about what's being done about it and what is in the works. The context for this discussion is the national crises which have manifested themselves here in our county, as they have in Astoria, across the bridge in Warrington, in Seaside, and throughout the region. The lack of funding for mental health care, the inability to compel individuals to accept treatment, the lack of funding for addiction treatment, our state legislature's decriminalization of drugs, and frankly, their preferential treatment of criminals over communities, and the national crisis of homelessness and the lack of shelters as housing costs continue to rise to completely new heights. Tonight, we'll hear from all of you who choose to submit a card. We're gonna hear from our business community, our residents, our social service providers, our law enforcement, and many others in an effort to find ways to mitigate the local impact of these national crises. We're gonna look for ways to restore a sense of safety and security on all of our streets, to find ways to enforce accountability on those who would harm our community, while at the same time assisting those who are suffering, who want help, to get help. Our police chief, Jeff Spaulding, has been a statewide leader working with law enforcement in cities across Oregon to identify legally defensible ordinances to keep communities safe. He's bringing new proposed ordinances to our city council, and you'll hear about some of those tonight. I want to thank Chief Spaulding and his officers, as well as Clatsop County Sheriff Matt Phillips, who's here, and his staff for everything they do to keep our communities safe. And they're here to answer your questions tonight. I also want to acknowledge the daily efforts of our social service providers, the volunteers and professionals who are represented on this dais tonight. Every day they connect members of our unsheltered population to shelter, to housing, to food, to treatment, to job training, and to jobs. And they never get the credit they deserve. Their success stories are never told. The truth is, without their efforts, our unsheltered population would be twice as large as it is today, and they deserve our thanks. And you can ask questions of them tonight as well. So tonight is intended to be the start of a community conversation. Welcome. We look forward to addressing all of your questions and concerns, and at least some of us on the panel will be able to stick around afterwards for some one-on-one -on -one conversations. So now I'd like to introduce the Executive Director of the Astoria Warrington Ch Chamber of Commerce, David Reed. David. Good evening. Can you hear me okay in the back there? Is that better? Okay. For those of you who don't know me, I'm David Reed. I'm the executive director of the Astoria Warrington Area Chamber. The Chamber's mission is to provide the means for the collective and sustained success of our local economy and way of life. In other words, to keep a healthy economy. And a healthy economy doesn't by itself fix the problems that we're going to be discussing here tonight. But an unhealthy economy absolutely makes these problems worse, all of them. A bad economy creates more need, more demand on services, and simultaneously reduces the tax funds and charitable donations available to meet those demands and provide those services. And there is no question that the health of our downtown is key to the health of our economy. 
We can't be a prosperous community with a declining downtown. And the current situation is already causing our downtown to decline in a number of ways. Ways like employees and customers feeling unsafe just walking around. Ways like trash, debris, and personal effects cluttering gutters and sidewalks. Ways like loud and sometimes violent confrontations in public spaces. Infantile behavior by grown men and women. Ways like open drug use loitering and camping to such an extent that some local residents feel like entire parks and city blocks are off limits to them. We're going to hear a lot about compassion tonight, and rightly so. I'm asking everyone here to also have compassion for the employee who just wants to go to work unmolested. I'm asking for compassion for local residents who want to take a stroll down our river walk or visit a park in peace and safety. I'm asking for compassion for business owners who have put their heart, their soul, and often their life savings into a small business, who have sacrificed nearly everything just to build something special and create opportunity for others. Business owners who, through incredible hard work and risk and tenacity, made it through a global pandemic, only to see their customers scared off by totally preventable situations. The truth is, it's not compassionate to anyone to allow things to continue as they are. I encourage everyone tonight to understand that yes, this is a terribly complicated issue, and no, it's not strictly a matter for law enforcement. I encourage you to continue to care for the people in our midst who are suffering and needing, but not to forget those who are doing nothing more than trying to make a living and a positive contribution to our city and our way of life, because those people deserve our compassion too. Right now, many residents and business owners are mad at the current situation. I know I'm mad. We all deserve better than this. I just don't want us to be mad at each other because we deserve better than that, too. Listen, nearly everything of value in our community has come about because of collaboration. Nearly every large problem we've ever faced has been solved by working together. So we can't keep throwing our hands up and saying, it's complicated, and we can't keep blaming each other, the city or even the agencies and organizations who are trying to help people. What we can do is keep this e evening civil and productive, thank you. Thanks, and let's listen carefully to the speakers, ask questions and learn everything we possibly can so we can come away with workable, legal, kind, and effective steps that we can take as individuals and as a community. And let's treat this evening as just the first step to a lasting solution that restores to all of us the Astoria that we each fell in love with. Thank you very much, David. We'll now hear from um, Chief Spaulding, who will talk about some of the challenges um, from the law enforcement side due to actual laws and regulations at the state and federal level to help provide a larger context and bigger picture of some of the things that the city can and cannot do. All right, well, good evening. Can you all hear me in the back? Yes. Great, great, thank you. Well, first off, I would like to echo what others have said and 
just tell you all how much we appreciate everybody here tonight. The mere fact that we have a packed house really does speak volumes in terms of the magnitude of the problem we're facing. I will tell you that one of the conversations we've been having internally in the police department over the last year is if only we could help our community understand why we can't do certain things. How can we get the word out? And for me, this was a, a great opportunity and I jumped on it as soon as I heard that we have an opportunity to share some information with all of you. Um, we, we clearly understand that um, there's a lot of frustration out there. Again, you're hearing a common thing. We know that. I don't need to tell you that. But the frustration is not only in the community. We also have frustration against my own officers. And, and I would tell you, Sheriff Phillips probably would say the same thing. And part of that is just simply because of all of the uh, massive laws that we have to deal with, the confusion, the ambiguity. It, it makes it very difficult to police in. And it, it's such a significant challenge. My time tonight, I probably have about a day's worth of material that I have to cram into about 25 minutes. And that 25 minutes includes a couple other professionals you're going to hear from tonight with Amy Baker, Viviana Matthews, and also Sheriff Phillips here behind me. And he's not in timeout. It's just that this was somewhat of a, a late addition simply because we um, added him, uh, because he's got such an important piece of this when he won't talk about the jail and the jail challenges, uh, that he can obviously do a much better job explaining that. So I think you'll all uh, appreciate what he has to say, including some light at the end of the tunnel too. So we'll get to those in a little bit. Um, so there are so many different things I could talk about tonight. Like I said, I've got a day's worth of material, but I tried to focus down into some hot button topics and some of the contemporary issues that we're dealing with today and also um, illustrate some of these challenges through one of the uh, significant problems we're dealing with, and that's the unlawful camping. So um, the other piece of this too is we wanna limit our time because any extra time that I go over, then it's taking time away from the ability of us to answer your questions. So like I said, I'm gonna go through a lot of material. I'm gonna go through it fairly fast, so that means you have to listen fast. And at the same time, I do wanna make sure that we allow time for questions. And I will also reiterate too that if we don't get to your question tonight, um, I'll talk a little bit about the city website that's relatively new, the livability website, and these will be posted in an FAQ type format. So one way or another, your voices will all be heard. Oftentimes we're asked, you know, why is the police department so heavily involved in this issue? It's, it's a tremendous social service issue that crosses multiple disciplines, all the way from the mental health crisis to substance abuse crisis to housing crisis. And why is the police department involved? Well, I'm venturing a guess that most of the time when you see something that doesn't look right in your community, who do you call? You call the police department, right? And I wouldn't discourage anybody from continuing to do that because that's what we do. But at the same time, I will also tell you that we are not the best equipped to handle most of these situations. Clearly, many of these, we do need an officer on scene, especially when you're involving some element of violence. But the, for the most part, um, we understand that many of these do involve somebody that may be in a mental health crisis, someone's having a substance abuse issue, and a multitude of other type things. And you will hear from a couple of the other professionals tonight too, so that's you know kind of tying all this together. So the extent of the problem, I consciously chose not to come here tonight with a bunch of statistics. You don't need a bunch of stats to tell you what you already know, we have a problem. And so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on that. But one thing I will touch on is the community survey that we did um, probably almost a year ago now. The results again are also posted on the website. And what was abundantly clear from that 
community survey, and we actually had a really good representative sample of our community, and that was that there is homelessness was your top two issues. And uh, the perception of safety, feeling safety, especially in the areas of the Riverwalk and the downtown were very high on everybody's list. I will also tell you that when we look at the numbers, the numbers don't necessarily support that. The most of the violence we see is amongst homeless on homeless. It's not necessarily homeless on tourists or citizens. But at the same time, that doesn't matter. Perception is reality as far as we're concerned. So we still have to address that, and we will continue to do that. So uh, one of the things I'll reiterate also what the mayor said, we're talking about addressing behavior and behavior of a small percentage of the homeless population. The vast majority of the homeless population are not there by choice. They don't want to be in that position and they do need help and they need help from any number of the people that we'll be talking to tonight. We're talking about a small percentage of individuals who choose not to conform to community standards and those are the ones that we as a police department want to hold accountable. And oftentimes holding people accountable, even when it, we talk about arrests or citations, which some people feel is offensive, but at the same time, oftentimes that's what it takes to get people into services. So it's not a bad thing, and I know Amy will tell you that as well from Clapsit Behavioral Health. If I was having this conversation a year ago, it would be a very different conversation. I would be answering questions from many of you in here as why are you being so mean to the homeless individuals? Tonight, the tide has changed. Not tonight, but over the last year. Clearly, these are different conversations we're having. I think people are fed up, but at the same time, we can't lose sight that we're still de dealing with humanity, and there are a lot of good people out there that are not part of this group that we're talking about tonight. So I just want to, to refresh, or to, re people, to remind people of that. So I'm gonna uh, touch on some of the challenge we face. Again, I'm gonna go through these relatively quickly. Um, as a police department, we're, we're guided by laws that come from all levels. They come from the United States Constitution. We have federal law, we have state law, we have local law. And amongst those, not in, in addition to the law, we also have court decisions and case law that uh, further refines and interprets the laws. And then we also have um, house bills that legislation uh, enacts and which eventually become law as well. In the Constitution, we are limited by what we do, and we, we don't get to pick and choose what we're going to enforce. The Constitution has several um, pieces that uh, focus specifically on areas that we get calls on regularly. For example, panhandling. The First Amendment says that panhandling is a freedom of speech issue, and you cannot regulate panhandling with certain exceptions, such as clearly you can't panhandle in the middle of a roadway, and there are some other exceptions. but. Clearly, the act of handling or begging is not is constitutionally protected activity. Same thing goes for loitering. Somebody just simply standing on a corner or sitting on a park bench. You know, we do not have the ability to regulate loitering to a certain extent. There are certain exceptions, such as loitering around a, you know, if we had a house of prostitution like in Portland or something, that, that would be something that we could regulate. But by and large, we don't have the ability to control uh, somebody loitering. And the other one that uh, I have up here on the slide is the Eighth Amendment, and that refers to cruel, unusual punishment. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. It may not make a lot of sense right now, but you'll see where that comes in, in terms of at least a court's interpretation of how that applies to what we do. As far as the federal laws, the, obviously we follow the laws and the um, decisions of the higher court decisions. 
We are in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Ninth Circuit is seven states on the West Coast and includes Hawaii and um, Alaska. So for a total of nine states, it's the biggest um, uh, circuit court in, in, the district, in the United States. And also I'm told that uh, two thirds of the homeless population actually resides in the Ninth Circuit. So if a decision is made in another state like Boise, which I'm gonna be talking about, then that is binding on Oregon. We talk about at the state level, I'm gonna be talking about a decision that was in the district court and the decision in Blakes versus Grants Pass. And that was in a district court, not the Ninth Circuit. However, it applies to Oregon, but not the other states around it. And then lastly, um, in state law, there's the House bill, the more recent ones we'll talk about tonight is 3115 and 3124. And these are recent legislation that came out of the 2021 session and also um, are binding and, and actually are law once they are passed and signed by the governor. And I'll touch on those briefly as well. Uh, the only thing I wanna say about local laws, clearly we have ordinances that we um, have on the books and that we're gonna be talking a little bit more about uh, potentially changing some ordinances. The one thing that we can't do is we cannot enact an ordinance that uh, is less strict than, or it, that supersedes a requirement of federal or state law. So if there's a law in the books, such as panhandling, for example, we cannot, that, that allows panhandling, we cannot enact an ordinance that would now prohibit it. So just a couple things again, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but um, all of this means that on some level, you know, we say this all the time in law enforcement, we feel like we have to be attorneys and we're constantly reaching out to different attorneys to try and get legal opinions. There is so much ambiguity in the law, they're very hard to nail down. Many times, many of these decisions are brought forward by, for example, the one we'll be talking about, House Bill 3115, was brought forward by a senator out of Multnomah County, and there's some expectation that somehow this is gonna to apply to a rural city like Astoria. It just doesn't always fit. And so we have to work within, you know, the, the language of the law. And oftentimes uh, it, they aren't clear, they're very ambiguous. And the only way we're gonna find out is to test them. Some city is going to test these and they're going to do what they think is the appropriate thing. And someone is going to be challenged and either by a lawsuit or by some other means. Doesn't mean that we don't not do it because we're gonna do what we feel is right. But we also understand that um, at some point, the vast majority of cities will be sued either by the Oregon Law Center or ACLU or, or an individual themselves. Um, so I, am, I mentioned that I'm gonna talk a little bit about a case study. So this is the one that we get lots and lots of questions on. We're really still trying to refine and get some clarity on, but this is the camping ordinance. All of you have seen at some point in the city, you've seen a tent pop up somewhere, whether it's in a park, whether it's in the Garden of Surging Waves, it's on a sidewalk. What do we do about people sleeping in tents? So, um, oops. Okay, my slides are slightly out of order, so I'll have to adjust. So the first case that came out was a case called Martin versus Boise. So this was a class action lawsuit by a group of six individuals that were homeless that filed the lawsuit against the city. And this is a lawsuit that actually went on for over 10 years. The case was finally settled in, in 2018. Um, this is a Ninth Circuit course. Again, this is binding on Oregon and other states in the Ninth Circuit District. And the, um, the, the ruling was actually appealed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court chose not to hear it, so the, it, it is currently the law of the land, so to speak. 
Um, this one actually has slightly less impact than a couple of the other ones I'm going to talk about, but this was kind of the initial case that got the ball rolling on some of the issues. So there's some key takeaways. I'm going to kind of refine 40-some pages of a court decision down to, to a, just a few key points to so understand what we're working with. In the uh, Martin versus Boise decision, one of the takeaways was that it prohibits cities from criminalizing the status of homelessness by punishing individuals for sleeping outside when they have nowhere to go. Cities cannot enforce anti-camping ordinances if they do not have enough homeless shelter beds available for their homeless population. Any restriction in the form of criminal penalties on an individual's ability to sit, sleep, or lay down where no valid alternatives are available is indeed cruel and unusual punishment and a violation of the Eighth Amendment. So this is what I talked about earlier, the Eighth Amendment, the cruel and unusual punishment. This was an interpretation of many of the judges in the Ninth Circuit. There were actually two dissenting judges that did not agree with this opinion and also thought this was a stretch of the um, Eighth Amendment and the cruel and unusual punishment was actually crafted way back in the day when they were having discussions on, on death penalty and those types of issues that didn't involve you know, homeless individuals and you know, criminalization or criminalizing that behavior. So in Boise, that case, what that meant to Astoria was that um, basically, we cannot punish somebody for the act of, or, or for the status of being homeless and because they don't have somewhere to live if we don't have available bed space. Uh, in, interestingly enough, Boise actually did have enough bed space, but there was also uh, some pretty high barrier restrictions. Some of them had certain religious requirements, some were closed uh, during certain times of the day. Some of them had certain rules that certain individuals didn't want to follow, so not necessarily everybody had the ability to get into a shelter. So that, um, um, the other important key point to that one was that basically you could not establish a wholesale ban in your community against camping in your community. So um, if we have nowhere that we can tell somebody they can go, we cannot simply go, you cannot erect a tent or you cannot not sleep in certain areas of the community. And so that's the Boise decision. The one thing for us was that um, in Astoria, we have different levels of crimes. We have a violation level offense, we have a misdemeanor level offense, and we have felonies. If we ever took action against an individual, it would be a citation, it would be a violation level offense, which can only be assessed as a fine, and, and there's no possibility of someone going to jail. So, um, by definition, we were safe with Martin v. Boise. We could take action if we chose to, but it was very rare circumstance where that happened anyway. So um, a, a little bit later, along came Blake's versus Grants Pass, something like 41 days after the Boise decision dropped that Blake's versus Grants Pass. This one took it a couple steps further. Again, this was in the District Court of Oregon, so it was binding on Oregon and no other states in the area. The tenants of this case were very similar to the Boise decision, but basically what they said is the United States Constitution prohibits punishing people for engaging in unavoidable human acts such as sleeping or resting outside when they have no access to shelter. Governments may not enact local laws that prohibit individuals from sitting, lying, sleeping, or camping on public property when there are no other alternative shelters. They cannot impose fines, even a small fine as a punishment. The Eighth Amendment also prohibits a city from punishing homeless people for taking necessary steps or minimal measures to keep themselves warm and dry while sleeping when there are no alternative forms of shelter available. Cities may still implement reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions on regulated activities. 
So there were some similarities, quite a few similarities actually. However, one of the things they did add that said, in addition to not being able to arrest somebody, you can't even issue someone a criminal citation because any amount of fine, regardless of the amount, is more than a homeless individual can pay, and therefore it's cruel and unusual punishment. The other thing that they um, had a pretty clear distinction in the Grants Pass, Grants Pass had created some areas outside the city limits where people could go. The court said that that's not reasonable. It has to be within the city limits because basically it, uh, Grants Pass was moving people on from their community. So that matters here because when we look for potential areas where we might be able to set an area up, we have to, at least based on this interpretation, consider the, the city limits. So, that's one of those areas that hasn't been fully tested. So along came House Bill 3115. So this basically, um, again, was brought by uh, an Oregon legislator uh, with the intent to uh, codify the uh, Ninth Circuit decision so that it became law because there was some understanding that the Boise case was going to be appealed. So if that got appealed, there's now a law in the books. So 3115, basically requires local governments in Oregon to adopt policies that are objectively reasonable in regulating time, place, and manner. So the bill did not offer any guidance in terms of what is objectively reasonable, but the one thing that we're looking at, if we don't have enough shelter bed space for somebody to go to, and we don't, then we, we have to establish, basically in order to enforce this, we have to establish an ordinance where we can tell somebody where they can go. And then if we identify certain locations that individuals can go to sleep, then we can restrict them from other locations throughout the city. There is not clarity in terms of whether we can control somebody setting up a tent. It's our understanding that there's a clear distinction between sleeping and setting up a camp and setting up any form of permanency. This particular house bill even identifies, says you can have um, the, uh, the, the amount of uh, supplies or whatever to keep you warm and dry, and that does not include fire. And that was about the only clarity they provided. I know some cities actually allow tents, some don't allow tents. So again, that, that was one of the areas that wasn't covered. House Bill 3124 um, was also in the 21, 2021 session, and this was the one that says you um, in order to remove individuals from established campsites, you have to mark their tent and you have to provide them 72 hours um, to, to move on, so to speak. And this also required that we notified social services um, when we marked the tent and when we came back to clear the camp. That's something we did anyway. Even when it used to be 24 hours, we were giving 72 hours. So that one doesn't necessarily impact us a whole lot because that's what we're doing right now. But again, there's challenges to this, such as if an individual, we mark a tent and they move it half a block away, do we start the time over again? So these are some of the things I'll talk a little bit about in terms of how we're trying to seek clarity on. Tim? So um, when I talk about resources and why we can't do certain things, we have some pretty significant challenges. And I'm going to try to find the right slide. Jeez. Okay, well, it looks like I, I lost the slide, but I, I will tell you that 
Um, when we talk about resources, some of our biggest challenges are in the police department alone, many people think based on our survey that we have anywhere from um, two to three officers today to I think there was even as many as nine or ten is what people actually saw that we had out there. In reality, on any given day, it's, we average probably about two and a half officers. Most of the time we have two officers, sometimes we have three. Um, we do a really good job at responding to calls and handling uh, issues and, and when we have discretionary time, we try to be proactive but with all the things that we have going on, and we actually are a very busy city, thank God there's not a lot of significant violent crime, but again, there's enough to keep us plenty busy, and so it's a challenge. So a lot of times we're just, we're, we're fortunate just to be able to be reactive and respond to the calls for service. We'd like to be more proactive, but again, we're, we're somewhat limited in our resources. So our staffing is a challenge. Um, we talk about sanctions and the revolving door. If we issue somebody a citation for court, there's a high likelihood that that person won't appear. I'm told that it's roughly 10% of people even appear and then they're sent to collections. And so um, that's not realistic because we know the individuals don't have the ability to pay. Uh, there's significant challenges about the, uh, the jail. If we take someone to jail, the jail has capacity issues. I'm gonna let the sheriff talk about that in a minute, so I don't wanna get too much into that. Um, I'll just briefly say the district attorney's office and the courts, they both have challenges in terms of they're gonna take the highest priority cases. If they have more serious cases that they view as more serious than, than maybe a trespassing or a defecation in public or some of those kinds of things. So it's, it's, some of it is capacity issues. Um, so uh, at this point, I think what I would like to do because I don't want to uh, cut off any time from um, Viviana and Amy, I'll invite Amy up first and uh, I will tell you that one of the, my biggest frustrations you know, that I've seen, originally I spent my first career in, in down in California. When we had somebody who was in a mental health crisis, it was really quite simple to take them for what we called a 5150, and we'd take them to the local hospital, and they'd be committed for 72 hours. Um, I've seen several cases where I'm thinking to myself, wow, what's the threshold? I mean, what does somebody have to do before we can commit them? Well, Amy's prepared to talk about that tonight, and to me, that, that's a huge challenge, and I don't think most of the community really understands what that looks like. So, uh, at this point, I'm gonna turn over to Amy, then I'm gonna turn over to Viviana, let her talk a little bit, then I'm gonna turn over to the sheriff, and then I will be back towards the end to talk about some of the things that we are working on. I want you all to know that I don't want to be a Debbie Downer here, but there is some light at the end of the tunnel, and there are some things that, there are a lot of things that we're working on, and we even give you a couple takeaways for tonight. So I'll be back. Okay. Hi, uh, my name's Amy Baker, and I'm the executive director at Cots Behavioral Healthcare. And the first and most important question I have right now is how do I look? Do I look <laughs> Do I look pretty good? That's real good, because if I make another Jeff Daly video, I want to look good. <laughs> Sorry, say that again? <laughs> no, we don't. I just felt like we needed a little levity. Um, so my organization uh, has been around since uh, 1963. Uh, we have somewhere around 100 employees. We have 26 programs. We serve uh, uh, young children all the way to older adults. Um, and 99% of the work that we do with individuals is all on a voluntary basis. 
People get services from us because they want those services, not because they have to get them. And, and I want to say that our organization has gone through a uh, mental health and substance use disorder cultural revolution over the last five years to turn ourselves inside and out so that we are more desirable, that we are able to reach people that we couldn't reach before. We have staff who are going out there into the, into the woods and into the homeless camps and working with law enforcement. We care. We want to help people. It pains me to see people suffering on the street. And it's not just me that it pains. It pains every single one of the staff who works at CBH. We do this with heart, and we do this with compassion. And yes, when you see somebody who is struggling on the street, who you wish could be in treatment, we wish that too. We want that too. So the way the laws work in Oregon is that is a very high threshold to force people into treatment services. That's just Oregon. Oregon is very libertarian. It's very, very um, pro-individual rights. And it's, and it's gotten harder in the six years that I've been here because the Court of Appeals kept throwing out commitment cases. So we've had to change the way that we do business so that we are able to entice people in, so that we have people who have lived experience. Hey, I've been where you've been. I feel you. This is what worked for me. Try us. Give us a chance. We opened a rapid access center so anybody could walk in if they were experiencing a crisis. We want to be there and we want to help, but we also have limitations. And with all of the services that we have developed over the last five years, I would say the most glaring piece is having permanent supported housing. We need housing for our clients where they're going to have help every single day. And so I'm uh, wrapping it up. <laughs> and I just want to say I'm like, super grateful to be here, that I think this is a really important uh, conversation. I spoke to these folks earlier and said, don't give me softballs, give me hardballs. Ask the hard questions. I want to answer those questions. Viviana. Thank you, Amy. Hi. Can everyone hear me? Yep. Thank you. I am Viviana Matthews. I'm the executive director at Clatsop Community Action. And Amy looks good. And I, ha and I have an accent because I speak three languages. So I hope everybody understands me. So Clatsop Community Action mission is to help people with housing, food, and other basic needs. And how we do that here in Clatsop County, it's by two different programs. One is homeless prevention. And that's what it is. It's a homeless prevention program. We help people paying rent, utilities, personal care. We, last year, we helped, um, we spent close to $4 million in rental assistance to prevent homelessness. We distributed 1.5 million pounds of food in Clatsop County, and over 90% of that comes outside of Clatsop County. The other department that we have is the rapid rehousing, which is programs to help the unsheltered population. 
and homelessness have many different faces. We have close to, I'd say probably 700 people who are homeless in Clatsop County. We have people who are fleeing domestic violence. We have people who are not able to afford uh, rent, so they're living in their vehicles. We have many different faces of homelessness. And then we have programs for that, such as housing assistance. We have the great program of, of the Clatsop County House, um, Homeless Liaisons, which helps and shelter population to connect to services. And the services are very limited because yet yeah, we do have a lot of fundings or more fundings to prevent homelessness, but we do not have a lot of fundings to help people who are already on the street. So that is, that is the clear picture. In rural Oregon, we get less than $1,000 per um, individual who are on the street with our services. And if you compare that to urban setting, in urban settings, about $7,000 per um, homeless individual. So please keep that in mind, that we are trying the best we can with the limitations that we have. And also, we, we help the um, unsheltered populations who are ready to be helped. A lot of people are not ready for moving into a place, for whatever reason that is. But we are there to, we're there to provide our services when they are ready. Thank you. Good evening, I'm Matt Phillips, and it's my pleasure to serve as your sheriff. I, uh, for a little bit of perspective, so you know where I'm coming from and how I view this issue, the, the last two years have been really challenging. It doesn't matter who you are. And, and it's issues that are largely out of our control as individuals, you know, like the pandemic. And I think that leaves us hungry to control those things that are near and dear to us. And that's the reputation and identity of our community as a safe place for everyone to work, live, and raise a family. And that's why we're here tonight. The challenges, of course, that we're discussing tonight are not unique to Astoria. This is an Astoria meeting, and that's part of why I'm here. It, the same issues but different flavors are occurring in Warrington and Seaside and out in the unincorporated areas of the county and across the state. Specifically, I'm here to talk about the jail, and I know that um, Many times it seems like the person that's been contacted 200 and something times in the past year for disorderly behavior by the police is, is finally arrested and, and put in jail and then shortly released. Um, and yeah, that, that happens. And I don't always love that. But our jail is a limited resource and the pan pandemic certainly put additional limitations on that. It turned our already small 60 bed jail into about a 30 bed jail. But there is good news. We've worked with uh, OHA and our local public health department to uh, shorten the time that we have to isolate our intake cohort. Uh, at one point it was 14 days. Now we're, with our PCR testing, we're able to do it in five days. That will uh, increase the capacity of the jail and it's already starting to take effect now. And I'm, I will always be forever grateful to the voters of Clatsop County who who gave us a nod of support in November 2018, passing the jail bond. Uh, by October, we will be opening a new state-of-the-art jail that will uh, about triple our capacity. It'll increase the capacity to provide services to the 
the people that end up there um, by a thousand percent or maybe immeasurable and that will be of great benefit. Um, additionally, I'm opening lines of communication to the local law enforcement leaders uh, for some of the more problematic individuals if maybe we can at least hold someone uh, until arraignment and then it's the judge's decision on whether to release the person or keep. Um, and, and finally, the, the cascade of changes that we get from the courts and from the legislature, it, it changes the way we do our job on a, on a weekly basis, it feels like. And, and while many people are going through stages of grief trying to figure out what to do, uh, I think law enforcement and all the leaders up here are going through that too. But that will never change our commitment to everyone in this room and every citizen of Clatsop County to, to, to always do the right thing. Our dedication to our mission will never change. Thank you, Sheriff. In just a moment, we will move into the questions, um, but we wanted to have um, Aaron introduce yourself, Aaron, and talk a little bit about the role of your organization. We've heard from David and the mayor and Amy and Viviana and um, the chief, so let's go ahead and have you introduce yourself and say a little bit about what your organization does. Thank you. Um, my name is Aaron Carlson, and I am the director of Beacon Clubhouse. I also was the incorporator and previous executive director of Filling Empty Bellies, which is now Lifeboat Services. So Beacon Clubhouse is a program of Lifeboat Services. We offer non-clinical support, advocacy, skills training, and job placement for people with diagnosed mental illness. Um, and then Filling Empty Bellies, also now a program of Lifeboat Services, offers um, hot meals, advocacy, Wi-Fi computers, phones, job placements, transportation to jobs, emergency rental assistance, and also we work with co-located advocates from Clatsop Behavioral Healthcare, CCA, um, and the Harbor. So we've got a lot going on. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Let's see, this is not, is, can you hear me? I just wanna do sound check in the back. Can you hear me in the back of the room on this mic? Yes, and up above, okay. So our first question, and um, so this is for all of you, perhaps some of you know this, the answer. Has there ever been a survey done in a story amongst the homeless population on what resources they need and what would help them? Yeah, go ahead. Hi again. <laughs> So at Clatsop Community Action, we do a point-in-time count, which is counting the homeless population in Clatsop County, and then we do it by zip code. And one of the questions is why you became homeless and what is it that you might need to be able to obtain housing? So yes, we have. I, I didn't bring it with me today, but I, we do have it. Thank you. Thank you, Viviana. Um, this is more of a comment than a question, and it's a hardball for the panel, just so you know, but this was a comment, and it says, as a comment, I find the lack of an actual unhoused voice on the panel to be an extremely poor taste. It is um, a submission every historian should consider themselves fortunate that those, um, how, those housing um, in the back of a room have enough courage to oppose those who are um, our legalization on their behalf or legalizing on their behalf. The person 
sitting in a Victorian mansion should have no more value assigned to them than the heroin addict or the veteran, especially when the mansion owner is uh, causing a historian's uh, gentrification in the first place. So I'm just putting this out there because we said we were going to hear every voice, and I would like to know how the panel would like to, would like to, to comment that, on this. Um, so not many of you know that the executive director of Lifeboat Services is someone who experienced houselessness for many, many years. Um, and I would like to see him have a seat at this table very soon if we do this again. Thank you. Would anyone else like to comment? Yeah, I'll just say, good, good, good question. And um, we chose to have uh, advocates who work with the houseless population, specifically Aaron Daly here. But that is a very a valid point that we'll take under for the next time. Thank you. All right. Anyone else want to comment before we go to the next question? Okay. This probably will come to you, Chief. Um, it has been stated that. Blake versus Grant ruling prohibits the use of centralized area that's outside of city limits. It has been stated that. Who has given this legal opinion to the city? Was a second legal opinion sought? And did the opinion take into account that the centralization of essential services and transportation being provided to get people to the centralized camps and back and forth to Astoria, Warrington, and Seaside? I'm going to have to look at the questions. Okay. I'm having a hard time hearing you. Okay. So. <laughs> So just to clarify, the question is, you know, that's been stated that Blake versus Grant's Pass ruling prohibits the use of centralized area outside of the city limits. So Grant's Pass was a very interesting uh, court decision, and Grant's Pass was actually criticized by the judges because they had a philosophy or policy of moving people on and actually stated that uh, they were trying to move people out of the community. They actually um, selected a couple of areas outside their jurisdiction. Um, one of them was Hudland, or Bureau of Land Management land, and there was restrictions on time and place when they could be there, and there was some other property that was closed during certain times, and again, it was uh, far from services and what have you. So um, we, we do not have a current legal opinion from our attorneys in answer to this question yet in terms of how this applies to Astoria. This is one that I believe will probably be tested. Um, you know, we've looked at alternative locations that might just be outside the city limits. Of course, then it gets into the county. And uh, so it's definitely something that we are considering. We are just in the early formative stages of um, developing some options so that we can comply with this law. We actually have until July of 2023 to craft a new ordinance. So we want to make sure that we do it in a thoughtful and compassionate manner. But we will be seeking some additional legal guidance on this to uh, try to obtain some clarity about where, uh, what are the true boundaries, uh, especially in a smaller community like Astoria. Thank you. Our next question is from one of the unhoused participants. Where do you want us to go to sleep? There is not a shelter. Who would like to address that? Go ahead, I, I'm going to address a little bit of that. Because of CCA, we try to do the best we can to help all our residents of Clatsop County. And what that means is when we ask people what is it that they might need from us, people who are in shelter, and a lot of them do say that they need a place to, to sleep, 
we are working every day nonstop to obtain more fundings to be able to open up shelters and open up warming centers here in Clatsop County. Last winter, we opened the uh, Clatsop Community Action with partnership with Helping Hands. We opened up the warming center in Seaside. So um, it is my duty to be working for our community to be able to bring more fundings to help the people who are housed that need our help and also people who are in shelter. Thank you. Does anyone else want to comment? Anyone else? Okay, our next question. I hear people say they are afraid to walk uh, downtown or near camping huts, fear of being attacked. Why would any of the designation areas be any different most of our, than most of our public areas. Some are even in areas where children will be. Do you plan on 24-7 security? So that is the question comment. I'll, I'll, I'll take the first stab at that, Chief, if you want to add anything. So that list that you have seen of um, potential campsites is in response to this idea that either uh, we let people continue to camp at random locations on public land around town, such as the River Trail, parks, and, and the front door of the Boynton building, um, or we designate certain um, areas in the city that are large enough to serve as a uh, campsite. This is in the extremely preliminary stages of review. We have not yet looked at private property that we might be able to lease for that purpose. Uh, nor have we looked at any of the faith-based uh, organizations for any property that they might have. Our intention is to be able to, once we have an actual list of properties that are conceivably useful for that purpose, to frankly have a community meeting where the community provides input. And we want the community's input on whether, if given the choice of having continued camping in random places around town or designated areas, which would you prefer? And, and there'll be a list of pros and cons for each, which would include things like how close is it to a neighborhood, to a school, to a highway, and other things like that. The details on what security would be provided, what um, sanitation and hygiene would be provided, are all to be worked out, and we'll be looking to other jurisdictions as well to see what they do and what they have found to be successful. Yeah, and I would just like to add that of the potential locations, that's all they are is potential locations. Again, we're just in the very early formative stages of looking at this as one potential options. Um, what, one of the things of note is that in, in the list of different locations, which is also posted on the city's website on the livability page, is the um, pros and cons. We've listed out the different things that we feel are going to be problematic, and, and some of those are proximity to a school, uh, proximity to residential areas, and, and so we try to capture as many of those as possible. So those, these are all going to be considerations, and as the mayor mentioned, we are going to be looking for additional community input uh, for uh, before any of these decisions or any of these locations are selected, if any of them. Thank you. Our next question, owning a business downtown, I see the transient population on a daily basis. There are a few regulars, but I mostly see a rotating stock. My question is, where do these individuals come from? 
They claim to be community members, but I have not seen most of them more than uh, at a month at a time. They claim to be community members and citizens, but I don't feel that this is true. There are more services we offer. Um, the less we enforce the zones and ordinances, the more transients will come. Who would like to address this? Uh, Viviana. I guess it's me again. <laughs> Going back to point in time count, Clatsaw uh, Community Action has to count unsheltered population in Clatsaw County to, re con to continue to receive funding through the state and federal. And a last uh, survey that we did was last uh, week of January of 2022. And over 80% of the unsheltered population have been in Clatsop County for over then uh, one and a half year. So when you say transient, it's uh, what we found that the majority of people have been here longer than a year and a half. Thank you. Would anybody else like to comment? What, well, please, um, Aaron, go ahead and answer the comment. I would just reiterate that, um, you know, in working with the houseless population day in and day out, um, most are local, I would say between 80 and 90% in our experience. Thank you. Here's another, uh, did you want to answer, Chief? I'll just, the only thing I would like to add is, and I don't disagree with anything uh, the other panelists have said, um, what, you know, many of the individuals and several of them, like the mayor mentioned earlier, some of them literally have hundreds of calls for service. And we go back and look at those, we can see that a lot of these individuals have been in the community for a very long time, and so we would consider them Astoria residents. Uh, there are, however, some of the newer ones that we're seeing, and unfortunately, these are some of the ones we're seeing um, some more uh, aggressive behavior from. And some of these, we are hearing stories that they're being dropped off from other jurisdictions, and for any variety of reasons that we're told that people are asking to come here, again, because of services. And I'm not saying that services necessarily draws people, but that's, that's what we hear. So that is one of the things that, you know, we, we have a hard time, you know, when we hear that another jurisdiction may be dropping someone off in our town. So um, that, that is one of the challenges that we are actually looking into. Amy. And I just, I want to, uh, sorry, let you clap. Go ahead, Amy. <laughs> I want to I confirm what Viviana and Aaron said, like with our mobile crisis team and our uh, recovery allies who go out in the field and work with folks, you know, probably somewhere around 80% are people who are from here. Of course, how do you, how do you define from here? Right, I've been here five years. Am I from, from here? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Then you're from here. Um, so, so, and I just, and I just have to say about the whole, like, if you build it, they will come. Like literally every community in this country is saying this right now. In fact, in uh, Springfield, Missouri, they're complaining that Oregon is sending their homeless people to, to Missouri. So, so this, so this is a very, very standard argument. Are there people who travel? Absolutely. That's, that's been true since the beatniks and, uh, you know, Dharma bombs and Jack Kerouac. Uh, there's absolutely people who travel, but 80% but, but of the folks we're talking about are, are, are people who are from here, whatever that means. All right, thank you. Um, since the homeless issue is larger in, than Astoria, what is the role or responsibility does Clatsop County and Warrington have towards the solution? Can any of you address that? 
Yeah, it says, since the homeless issue is larger than Astoria, what role or responsibility does Clatsop County and Warrington have towards the solution? Well, I'll, I'll attempt a response at that. I, I will tell you that um, many of the individuals we're talking about do go back and forth between the different communities. So uh, we have regular meetings uh, between all of the social service providers every couple of weeks, including the hospital. And we talk about individuals who need assistance and oftentimes we're talking about the same people. I'm hearing about the same names in Warrington and Seaside and, and in the county areas. So we know that a lot of these individuals do reside in Clatsop County. With that being said, to my point is that we are having regular meetings from all the different individuals. The sheriff and myself just recently uh, put together a group of all the law enforcement leaders in the county to strategize how can we work together and make sure that we're all on the same page, we have consistent ordinances, we have consistent enforcement strategies, and look for ways that we can work together to address some of these issues. And so um, that is part, you know, to ensure that we are all working together on the same problem so we're not duplicating efforts. So. Thank you. Um, our next question, uh, it starts with a statement, and um, can the voices of the people experiencing homelessness be heard? And I would like to qualify that by saying, what is in place to make this possible? We talked about a survey, but how else could we hear the voices and the needs of the homeless? Houseless. I, I Please, mean, Aaron and then and Viviana. One, one example would be at a forum like this, as I said, to invite um, people who have experienced houselessness um, or are currently experiencing houselessness to be up here um, speaking. And Please go ahead, Aaron. We're asking you to please keep our, our civility here and allow our speakers and have one voice at a time. So go ahead, Aaron, please. Yes, that's what we're addressing. Thank you. Please go ahead, Aaron. Um, anyways, um, I think that in, you know, in conversations like this, I think it is important to hear those voices. I really do. Um, and obviously, you know, one or two people does not represent all the voices of people that have experienced houselessness. It's a very, you know, it, it's complex and there's lots of diversity within that. So um, I just think that in, you know, settings like this, it would be good to give people an opportunity and make them feel safe to do so. Right. Thank you. Uh, Viviana, did you want to add? I, I was going to say uh, again that homelessness has many different faces. It's not only the people who are uh, outside of the, the lifeboat. It's people who are fleeing domestic violence. It's people who are sleeping in their vehicles. It's those 150 students at Warrington, Warrington schools that are homeless. So please, don't just, don't just think that homeless, it's only one face because it's not. We're, please put your question on a comment card, sir. We would like to take your comment, but please put it on a card. All right. So, next. so uh, one, one real quick thing I will add. We have bi-monthly meetings that the mayor chairs for the Homeless Solutions Task Force. Go ahead, Mayor. Uh, that the mayor chairs and these meetings are open to everybody they're public meetings and several of the meetings over the last four years we've had homeless individuals or houseless individuals come and address the group and give us their perspective that it will always be an opportunity Bruce okay um, this is Aaron in your boat um, there are just a couple questions of what are the rules of conduct at Lifeboat Services and what resources do you provide? Okay. 
Um, so it's a twofold question, it sounds like. I'll start with rules of conduct. So um, we certainly do have rules. There's no alcohol, no drug use, no violence. Um, no, we actually don't allow shopping carts in front of our um, establishment. So, and it's pretty, we're pretty strict. It's, you know, we, we use suspensions and we, we ask people to leave and they don't get services if they continue to violate our rules of conduct. Um, and then the second part of the question was what resources do we provide? Yeah, what resources do you yeah, provide? Yeah, so as I said earlier, we, um, we provide basic human needs. So our goal is to meet the basic needs of humans so that they, you know, are not in such a state of desperation. And it does, you know, our goal is also to reduce criminal behavior by meeting basic needs. So food, um, warmth, access to the internet, <laughs> access to phones, um, access to job, applications and advocacy, transportation, um, and <laughs> I'll, I'll end it there. I'm sorry, right, I'm a little right. bit distracted about what's going um, on. For Amy and Viviana, is this a question applicable to you as well? Could you answer this as well? But either of you. Okay, the question is, um, what are the thresholds um, or rules of conduct in your um, business, and then what services do you provide? So let's start with Amy, and then we'll move to Viviana. So uh, probably of all of our facilities where we're most likely to... Just a moment. Could, could we please have one conversation so at a time? I have, um, I have asked our officer on duty to speak to the gentleman. Would the gentleman please stop speaking? We're trying to have a conversation. Did he okay. leave? Okay. All right. Thank you. So again, the question is, what are the rules of conduct in your organization, Amy, and what basic services do you provide, like the yeah. kind of the top? Um, so we do a lot of uh, uh, similar things to Viviana and Aaron around um, helping people with basic needs, food, shelter, um, uh, probably the, the, the place where we would serve the most folks who were unhoused is our rapid access center on Bond Street. And uh, basically, it's expectation for, um, expectation for safe behavior. Uh, you know, we are uh, conscientious of uh, safety of our staff and our clients, and um, uh, we very rarely have to uh, kick people out, but if, but if there's a safety issue, we certainly will. Um, always take into consideration um, you know, using best practices around how you de-escalate de folks. Um, but, you know, when you're in a community, you have expectations around how folks are going to, how they're going to behave, and our, our up, up, upmost goal is to creating uh, client and community safety. Thank you. Uh, Viviana? Well, at Clatsop Community Action, we provide many different services for the unsheltered population, from personal care items, just because um, food stamps does not pay for toilet paper. <laughs> so we provide toilet paper and, and all of that. We provide bus passes, showers. Um, we also sponsor, um, we uh, pass funding through um, the shelters, um, the harbor, um, the uh, Soya Warming Center, the uh, Seaside Warming Center, Helping Hands, and we help all the unsheltered population as much as we can with all the little services that we have for them. Thank you. 
Thank you. Our next question, how do the voices of business owners get heard? A lot of talk about the needs of the houseless population, but we are not talking about the needs of the businesses, um, and they have needs as well. That is, um, again, David from the, from the chamber, that is um, something that we are, are, are very much involved in. We've actually been involved with the Homeless Solutions Task Force from the very beginning. And what I said in my opening statement um, has been a recurring theme for us, which is that all of this gets worse if we let our economy falter. So um, we need to be cognizant of what, of what the impacts are on everybody, including businesses. So there are associations, if you're a member of the Chamber of Commerce, of course, um, you, have, you have a voice through us. If you're a member of the Downtown Association, um, you have a voice there. Um, but also, in, 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 if you're not even a member of those people, um, those groups, and you come and talk to us, let us know what's going on. One of the things that, uh, that we're, we're looking at and, and was the genesis for this was having a business owners forum, not to talk specifically about this issue or only about this issue, but we're coming to a different phase in the pandemic and what is the reality in, in individual businesses. So this will be part of that conversation and uh, we'll be putting that together in the next, next couple of months uh, to do exactly that. And that will be open to anybody that wants to be there. And we really do wanna hear that because there's some assumptions I can make. There's some news that I get from people who come through my door or they come to my meetings, um, but I certainly do not have a universal feel for how everybody's doing right now. So always an ongoing thing. I see uh, Brian from the Seaside Chamber there. His door is open as well. So organizations that, that, that uh, work with and speak for businesses, this is exactly what we do. So please take advantage of that. Thank you. Um, Chief, are there things that businesses have resources in contacting your um, organization that you can help with. Um, so uh, the first uh, thing I would say, so the question is, is what in terms of businesses, what support can at least the police department offer them? Um, the one thing we do encourage everybody to do is, of course, call the police when you see something you're aware of some activity. We do hear from sometimes from people that they don't want to call us or they're not going to call us because they simply don't think anything's going to be done. Again, as I mentioned earlier, we are mostly a reactive agency and um, for, for good or bad because we don't have as much staff as we would like to have. Um, we do the best we can with what we have, but we will respond and we will check it out. If we don't know about it, then we simply aren't always going to be able to respond. So call us is the first thing. The second thing is if, if you're not already on our Property Watch program, um, go to our website and you can learn about the Property Watch program and that is an additional tool that gives us the ability to um, enforce trespassers or people on your property after hours when the business owner is not there. So that, that's another tool. So um, again, you know, feel free to reach out to me, to anybody in the police department and if you're having reoccurring problems, let us know. I am going to be talking a little bit about some additional ordinances and some other tools that we're going to be uh, moving forward on uh, later in the evening. Thank you. Um, May I say something? Yes, please. Thank you. And Cheryl and Amy, I'm sorry about this. <laughs> But we do have the home, at CCA, we do have the homeless liaison program. And then if you are uh, a business owner and need help with um, uh, somebody staying in, outside of your business, and we also can be in help. So please uh, remember CCA and call us if you need help with that too. 
Thank you. Thank you, Viviana. What is the state, local, and federal threshold for self-defense? And if an individual feels threatened in, in public, what specific actions can they take within the law? So I'm, I'm not an attorney, and I'm not going to give you an attorney response because I'm not one. Um, this would be best served by an attorney, but I will tell you that there is a threshold that anybody has a right to defend themselves, but it has to be reasonable. You can't obviously shoot somebody that's, um, you know, just coming at you yelling or screaming at you, but you have the right to defend yourself, to take the reasonable measures to uh, protect yourself from an attack from another individual. Um, we, we have seen that before. We've had a recent event where there was an individual who was threatened and um, she had a knife. And so that would be a situation where um, the officers determined that she was actually threatened and uh, she didn't use the knife, but at the same time, uh, she was not charged with an, any uh, menacing or other activity simply because that was a situation where you know, she was in fear of her life or, or, or somebody else's life. Thank you. Um, what is the city going to do uh, to prevent the loss of tourism due to the current situation? So, I mean, I think it's starting with this forum tonight. We're, we're here tonight because we have, we're here tonight, and going back to the last question, two questions ago, we're here tonight primarily because we've heard the concerns of the business community through individual business owners who have contacted us directly at the city council and through the advocacy groups at the chamber and CEDAR and ADHDA. So we're very concerned about the impact of uh, these behavioral issues on tourism. And we're very, uh, we're, we're very focused on keeping this as a top priority now in March to get it under control before the summer. Uh, that's why the chief is bringing forth these new ordinances. That's why we're having this meeting. So we, we're very focused on that. David. Yeah. Um, so tourism is a major industry here, to be certain. The last study we had was for 2020, the worst year we've had this this decade or this uh, century uh, for tourism. And 97.5 million dollars came into Warrenton and Astoria in in tourism direct spending. So it is a big industry here, and nobody knows that more than the Chamber of Commerce. But I think in this case, we don't need to be concerned about what the tourists think or do. What matters is how we feel about our community. Because if the quality of life that all of us, if the quality of life that all of us, housed and unhoused, um, experience here is good, then the tourist experience will be good. If it's not good for us, it doesn't matter how much paint we put on it or how much relocation or how much we hide things, it's not going to be a good experience. So let's concentrate on taking care of everybody in this community right now. And I think the tourism will take care of itself. Thank you. Our next question, um, who will fight hate crimes against the homeless? An example was given with the Grant Creek arson. Um, so chief. So if I understand the question correctly, is, is who will provide um, safety for the homeless or who will investigate a crime against the homeless? And as I mentioned earlier, everybody gets equal protection under the law. We do not discriminate by any class or any race. Um, we treat everybody fairly and equitably. Uh, the only problem we have is we don't always know about it. We are very much aware that 
Um, all the other types of offenses that we see happening on our, you know, on a regular basis do happen amongst the homeless community as well. Uh, domestic violence, um, fights, and um, these types of offenses. And unfortunately, we also know that this is probably very much underreported. So we would, of course, encourage those individuals who are the victim of a crime to report it. We will investigate it, and we will, again, uh, treat everybody equally. One of the things that our biggest concerns many years ago when we were removing camps from up in the forested areas, uh, that was one of our biggest drivers behind that because we know that there have been some relatively serious crimes up there including sex crimes, domestic violence, and we have, we have very limited ability to respond to those. In addition, the individual victims had very limited ability to report those. So all I can say is please report those. Thank you. Um, this is probably to you, Bruce. It's a winger. Is the city planning to streamline the process for homeowners to build ADUs? This could help ease the housing crisis in Astoria by increasing supply. So, so ADUs are uh, permitted currently in Astoria. I don't have the regulations right in front of me with the exact specifications. Um, that was a bit of a hurdle several years ago when it was approved to expand the uh, ability of the city to have ADUs. So I, I guess I would need, a, 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 if you can catch me after, I will stay after, and uh, Mr. Estes and I, and Mr. Estes is in the back, can address that question more specifically. If you have a more specific question about which aspect of the process you think needs to be streamlined, I'll be very happy to address that with you. Thank you. Um, there oh, is let me just, let me add, because it's kind of a connected question. Right. So the Planning Commission's next meeting, it's not about ADUs, but it is about um, starting to look at code changes that were, would allow for greater infill. It's um, code changes to comply with the county housing study as well as state law now that we're over 10,000 person residents. That would include um, to have more housing provided by reducing the minimum lot size, by increasing the maximum lot coverage, by looking at um, off-street parking requirements, as well as setbacks and um, building heights. And these changes are things that are recommended by the county housing study, and in some cases required by the state now to allow, uh, to, to add additional housing in our existing land inventory. Thank you. All right. Um, there is a concern that Astoria will attract transients if we provide services and support. Do we have similar concerns about transients who come to Astoria to buy second homes or bid the cost of our homes and rentals? So I promised I wouldn't hold back any questions, so here we go. Um, the second homes has been a pro I remember when I was walking door to door, um, it was near Mayor Lemire's house around Grand, I think, when I was running for mayor uh, three and a half years ago, and, and a lady, nice lady came to the door and she pointed down her street at four different houses. She said, no one lives in those houses except for a couple of weeks a year. And I know that that, that was true four years ago and it's, um, it's growing worse. Um, I, I, I have been told, although we have not specifically tried to enact anything, uh, that it's very difficult to put a tax on second homes. Um, I would love to look into that. I would love to uh, hear your ideas for any legally possible means to at least make it uh, so if people are buying second homes in our community, we can impose a significant tax on those that would go directly towards an affordable housing fund. 
it, it is it is a significant uh, problem. Thank you. All right. Um, I have two that are kind of related, so I might meld them. Um, but how do you educate people to understand that houses, people, mental illness, addiction, antisocial behavior are separate issues and need different approaches? Amy. That's definitely me. Um, no, I mean, that's 100% that a, that's a true. Like, uh, uh, just because you have a mental illness, it doesn't mean you can commit crimes, right? And we don't expect that. And we work with law enforcement all the time, not all the time with that specific issue, but everybody needs a sense of accountability. If there are people who are uh, not able or unwilling to follow laws, um, okay, me let's... mental health treatment's not going to fix that. Um, and there are... Can, can we please have one conversation at a time? Please go ahead, Amy. I will also say um, that some of the programs that we have developed that have been very successful uh, is for folks who need a little, uh, they need a little extra help from the legal system around um, doing what it is that they need to do. And so we've, we've developed uh, successful programs through mental health treatment court um, uh, that have helped stabilize folks in the community, people who have historically had a hard time following rules and it's worked. So the follow-on, this is a little bit different and it's probably not just for you, Amy, but the city as well, but it says, do our city leaders put the homeless in a number of categories, which would, uh, is part of what we're talking about here? And if so, what are they? And um, which are being chosen as those that you put resources into versus those that aren't? So part of it's a city question and part of it's you know other services. Let me, let me start with that because I think uh, probably between Aaron, Viviana, and I, we, we put the most resources into it. Um, so, and so Viviana should probably answer this as well. But basically, uh, we put the most resources into folks who are um, on a path uh, and who are in a place where they want to get help. Um, and, and if they're not in a place where they want to get help, we keep showing up until they are. Please, let's have one conversation at a time. Yeah, Go ahead, sorry. Amy. Um, although that's true. Um, uh, so, so essentially, like like I said before, we're a, we're a voluntary service, and we will work with people, and we'll wait until they're ready to work with us, um, because that's the thing. You know, most people when they get into treatment, it's almost always crisis driven. There's always like some sort of impetus, and the most important thing that we can do is be there when that crisis happens, to be the right person at the right time with the right resource. Uh, same thing with uh, Clots of Community Action. We are there pretty much all the time in making sure that we are going to be there when people are ready to be housed because homelessness is not just about not able to afford housing. There are a lot of different reasons why people are homeless. And we are there to refer people to different resources outside the county and within the county. We work very closely with CBH and we work very closely with filling empty bellies to be able to provide the services that we, we are able to do for our unsheltered population. Erin. Well, I think that 
um, we need to be careful when we use the word want. Um, and I think that's what I'm hearing from some of the voices back there is um, a lot of times it's not about a want. <laughs> There's a lot of other stuff going on and it's pretty complex. Um, I also think that, that getting off of the street, like if someone's living on the street and getting into housing, that's, that's a major process. And not everybody has um, all the resources at their fingertips and the capacity and everything that they need. I mean, put, you know, add to that maybe a criminal record from their past or add to that um, other things that are barriers for them. Bad credit, <laughs> they don't have first and last month's rent. I mean, there's a lot of factors and so um, I think that we just need to be really careful about using that word and assuming that people that aren't in housing don't want it. <laughs> yeah. And that's why we're here. You know, that's why Lifeboat's there is because we want to reach out to, um, to everyone, you know, at every place in that process and in that journey. And we really want to meet people where they're at um, in whatever capacity that we can. So thank you. This, this question is related. Um, and it's it's a, it's a challenge. It's you know what is a, what good is rent assistance or Section 8 vouchers when there are no places to rent or that will accept vouchers? So how do you address that? So that's another thing that we run into a lot, actually, because a lot of what Lifeboat does and Beacon does is try to you know after they've worked with CCA to get on the no voucher list or to um, you know get into the other programs that could potentially help them. Finding a place <laughs> to rent is hard. That's a big part of what we and our staff do is we, we call every day. We call the housing lists. We call mm -hmm. the numbers. We see what's available. Um, and so that is a, a huge barrier is that even when that, um, those resources are there, that help is there, the NOAA voucher is there, finding a place that um, our participants can move into is extremely difficult, extremely challenging. And one of the other challenging things is not so much about, yes, finding a place is extremely challenging, but keeping somebody housed, it's even harder, especially when somebody spend even just a short amount of time on the street because of uh, people have to learn new skills, like cooking right. for themselves, doing laundry for themselves, cleaning up their units, and all of those things that they just don't know how. So that's why when Amy says that we need permanent supported housing, people who have been homeless for quite some time need that extra because of uh, they just need to learn new skills that for people who are housed, it's just natural for us to go home and cook. But people who have nowhere to do those things, that is not something that they are used to. All right, thank you. Um, our next question is more on the legal side. What is the legality of videotaping unhoused community members while on the street? Isn't the street their home? So I'll say the short answer is that there is no prohibition against recording somebody in public. It, 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 as far as I'm aware, there's no distinction whether somebody is unhoused or uh, it's, it's some other individual. So there's no prohibition against that. Uh, as a government agency, I can tell you that if we were ever to videotape somebody or use a recording, we would obviously be very careful how we used it. And then obviously it's involving a juvenile that we're going to you know, blur the face on those types of things. But um, uh, there, there, you're, if you're in a public place, there's a limited expectation of privacy, so there is no prohibition against uh, recording out in public. 
Chief, can I follow up with a follow-up question on that? I'm curious about the legality of not just recording, but actually posting it publicly on social media and online without consent. Well, I, I believe that the, the answer is still the same. I don't know that there's any prohibition against somebody posting something on social media uh, of somebody recording somebody out in public. Um, that's something I will get a second opinion because this is a somewhat new territory to me and I want to make sure I'm not speaking out of turn. And Sheriff, I don't know if you have anything to add, but um, Mayor, you... I'm, I'm absolutely not going to make a legal comment and I, I certainly understand um, just generally if there's, a, if there's a very bad situation, or in the case, in the case we're probably one we're referring to is the video of that fight uh, at Surging Waves, which, um, which had one individual that pulled a knife that, was, that went viral. And as the chief clarified, which most of you probably don't even know, the, the person in the video who pulled the knife after the, and of course, like many videos, it only showed a few seconds, didn't show what happened before or what happened after, the person that, pulled the knife was not an instigator or a perpetrator. That person was the one defending herself and the police found she pulled the knife. So, so anyway, I understand why people put those videos out there to see what's going on in our community. But I, but I will add, aside from those that have a legitimate public purpose to let people know what's going on in the community, I have seen on social media sites within the last few months, people who take pictures of a unhoused person who's obviously going through some sort of mental distress, very disheveled, doing nothing illegal other than obviously very, very mentally distressed, or as a layperson might say, looking crazy, and posting it online as if to say, look at this, isn't this horrible? And it's really kind of disgusting to put someone in that position. And so I would, I would just ask our community members, before you post a photo or video of someone, consider whether what you're posting is someone suffering acute distress that actually needs a little humanity, or whether there's a legitimate public purpose to post it. Thank you. Our next question, how might accessible public storage in the downtown area positively affect both unhoused and housed community members? Sto storage is a huge, huge need, Keith, I hear that. Storage is a huge need. Um, and, you know, at Lifeboat, we actually don't allow people to store stuff because we just, it's, it's a lot of reasons, liability. But, um, and I've heard that from so many houseless people that if they had somewhere to put their belongings that are very important to them, very valuable to them, um, that it would relieve a lot of stress and it would also leave people having to see it. So it's a win-win, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree, Aaron, and we've heard that comment from some folks, and uh, I think, you know, representing the city, we'd like to, to work with, uh, with you and with uh, look at some, what some other cities have done. I think there are some inexpensive solutions, Connex boxes that are divided into lockers that could be put someplace out of the way where people have an opportunity to store belongings. And uh, with their own locks, the city would not be responsible for it, but then that would keep you know, that would reduce the need for shopping carts full of personal belongings on our streets. So I think that's probably, there's an inexpensive solution there, I think. We'll talk to you about it. Thank you. <clears throat> this uh, has a very specific quote in it. Applying the housing first model, how much would it cost to have only the chronic homeless? 
to house only the chronic homeless. That's a really good question. I don't, I don't, I don't have an answer to that off the top of my head, but I can, I can tell you that I've uh, researched housing first models, um, and uh, uh, and they've done housing first models in uh, Juneau, Alaska. They've done housing first models in um, cities all across the country, and basically the concept is, is that um, you just move people into housing. You don't jump through a lot of hoops. You don't require a lot of stuff. You just get somebody housed. And, and what they've found is that they're, like in terms of cost to the system, the, the um, uh, uh, people visiting the emergency room went down, calls to law enforcement went down, um, and that 80% uh, of the residents uh, years later remain housed. So it's a, it's a, it's a very effective model it's been uh, replicated all across the all across the country, um, and uh, uh, one of the things that they've discovered in the process, of course, is what Viviana was referring to, is that for folks who have been uh, chronically homeless, they need extra support. So you can't just put people into housing. You got to make sure that it's staffed, that you help with some of the day-to-day -day needs. Um, but it is, uh, it works. Any other comments? Okay. What is the housing authority's role in this, and why are they silent? Are they building new housing? Housing authority. Is that NOAA? Um, I don't know that any of us can speak for the housing authority, um, but I did talk to Nina Reed today, who's the board chair, and she says they're working on it. So I'm not speaking for them, but I did talk to her today. But, but once again, though, I'm going back to people who have been on the street for quite some time need a lot more support than just paying rent. So the housing authority does that, pay rent. So just remember that. that in, in, in what we get uh, for Section 80 in Clatsop County, it's not comparable to the urban city, right? But I know that North Oregon Housing Authority is working on housing inventory in Clatsop County. Um, this is, can there be a place where the houseless can get out of the weather? Where would that be, or how would we solve that? Um, Lifeboat offers that from 9 to 4 every day currently, um, and as we get more staff, we'd like to be open more. Um, when the warming center, the Astoria Warming Center is open, that's an option as well. But that is, I mean, that's the challenge. Um, I think our houseless population feels that there really is nowhere they can be. Um, there's a lot of places they can't be. Um, and they feel criminalized for, for being who they are. So I think that if we can work together to find places where um, houseless people can be, um, that would actually work to solve some of these bigger problems. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question, but. Right. Can each of um, Aaron, Amy, and Viviana share a success story? I, I would actually like permission to, if, if anyone is willing back there, to just come share your story. <laughs> like Mo Monica, Monica? <laughs> Is that, is that okay? Is that okay, Mayor? 
Is this on? Yes. Hold it right. Hello. Yeah, there we go. There you go. I do have a success story. We uh, CBH recently purchased a property in Seaside, and we're opening uh, three permanent supported apartments in Seaside. So it's not just Astoria. And we had a client who had been homeless for probably around two years. Uh, she spent a year in our uh, residential facility, and uh, she moved into her apartment in the last month, and she's thrilled. She looks like a different person. Like, she looks like a completely different person than the person I saw two years ago. She is, every time you go over, that place is tidy. She's working on job applications, and uh, it's, it, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, actually... Let, um, Aaron, let's have Viviana share her story and then please share yours. Well, I have so many. Um, one of them is that Clatsop Community Action has a partnership with CBH on housing severely mentally ill um, Clatsop County residents. And we housed about 10 individuals about 12 years ago and they're still housed. And they, they do well. And they, as Amy mentioned, they look complete, they're completely different people. They're part of our community. So, yeah. Okay, sorry, you're gonna have to kind of bear with me. Um, I have seek services from a lot of these people. And because of them, I'm alive, let alone housed. It's not an easy road. I've been housed off and on for a really long time. It takes one choice. I chose the wrong person. I wound up homeless. I had to go back and get help for a lot of things, let alone my house. But I, I went and I've done the work. I'm employed because of lifeboat services. I'm housed because of them and the other services I've seeked. Everybody talks about the people that's on the street. Everybody says stuff, that's me, that's them. Everybody's out there trying to do their best just like you. It just takes us a little bit longer. So please just be patient. Thank you for the courage to share your story. Um, so from a, another perspective, what can the community do to support the service agencies? Um, what, what support do you need for your work? Viviana? So much. <laughs> <laughs> I always say um, education, educate yourself. If you have a question, reach out. We are really welcome questions and, and, and help. Um, so absolutely, we, we put uh, Project Homeless Connect every year for the past 12 years, and we always need volunteers for that. Um, we need help by knowing what CCA does for our community, and just uh, if you know somebody who needs um, a hand, just 
refer them to us. Thank you. Amy. I would say, um, similar to what Viviana said, I think one of the hardest things about having mental health disorders is how um, isolated and ostracized you can be from the community. And, and the, the countries that do really well are the ones that include people in their community. Like Italy and the city of Trieste, um, people with mental health disorders are, are welcomed. And you know, if you haven't had a lot of experience with it, I understand it can be um, sometimes a little bit scary, but CBH offers classes. We have mental health first aid training. Um, we, can, we can help educate folks on, on what it means. And of course, you know, I, I've never sat anywhere with a big audience where I didn't look out and know that most of you have experience with this, um, either with your families or your friends or your neighbors. Like, this is not a them. This is the people you know. And this is a, a community issue. Um, it's not going to go away. People with mental health disorders and substance use disorders have been around since humans. It's not going to go away. So let's accept them into our community. It will make them healthier. Excluding them and isolating them makes them sick. Oh, and I think I heard a resource question in there. Yeah, and we'll okay. go to you and then to Aaron. I would just, I would just say, I would encourage everyone as uh, the statewide and, and national election seasons come, when you're looking at people who are running for uh, statewide office, look for people who, who will answer you and ask the question, what do you intend to do to provide more funding for treatment, for, for housing, for shelters, to, to help co small communities like ours, our community of 10,000 does not have a budget to have a mental health care agency to run a large shelter. Um, and, and I will be, I have already reached out to those who are running uh, for the gubernatorial and I will reach out to folks running for other statewide offices to say, please, this is, this is our priority. You know, it's, it's housing, it's homelessness and it's child care are the three things I always say when I speak to our state and federal representatives, and I would urge you all to do the same. Thank you. Aaron, are there um, resources that you need or that w yeah. what support do you need for I'll Life I'll keep it brief. Just keep reaching out. Schedule a tour. We'd love to have you come by and tour um, Lifeboat, share a meal with us, or ask us questions, or, um, yeah, just communicate. Thank you. Um, I have one more question that's a broad question, and then I have one that I'd like each of the panelists to answer as we draw. We're getting close to the end, but that's a perfect ending question. So, um, But before that, are there cities that have successfully reduced their homeless population? Uh, what has proven to work? Do any of you know of models that have worked in other cities? Um, in, I went... <laughs> I, I'm the one with an accent, but I'm not shy. <laughs> um, Eugene. Eugene has uh, reduced the number of homelessness because they have looked at different types of housing. They have looked at uh, um, small villages. They have looked at different ways of people needed to be housed. So um, Clats Community Action is looking at different models and see how we can bring some solutions to Clats County. 
Amy. Um, and I would add, uh, yes, there's a lot of cities that have been successful at this, uh, Houston being one of them. Um, Houston had a pretty significant homeless population and they had over 100 social service organizations that came together and started sharing information and working together around getting folks housed. The other thing they did was they developed a lot of affordable housing. There are, there are no cities across this country that have solved this problem without developing affordable housing. None. I can't find a single one. There are no cities that solve this problem by solely criminalizing it. Not that law enforcement doesn't have a role, but there are no, there's a list of the meanest cities in the country based on their homeless laws, and they have not solved homelessness. The only cities that have successfully done this is through the combination of affordable housing, permanent supported housing, and having your social service agencies work together in a really effective manner. Thank you. All right, so this, I, I love this question for each of our panelists, and um, Bruce, I'm changing it up a little, facilitator's um, prerogative. Um, but this is a wonderful question from the audience. What would you consider a success as a result of this presentation, and what do you hope to change? And I'd like everyone to, to speak to that, but I want to start um, with Philip Sheriffs, and then we'll go, um, or Sheriff Phillips, and then we'll go to Aaron and come this way. So I'm going to ask whoever is, continues to speak out, could you please stop so that we can have a, an effective presentation? Thank you. I, I, no. I would ask you to please stop speaking so that the panel can speak. Thank you. And if not, I'll have to ask Deputy Chief Howerson to come speak to you. Okay, hold the question for a second. Okay. So what do I consider success as a result of this presentation? I like seeing everyone together and recognizing that there is a challenge here and that we're all going to have to work together to, to re resolve it and solve it. And what do I hope to change? Um, I guess I, I wish that we, we didn't have this issue. Uh, homelessness is, and substance abuse and mental illness uh, shouldn't always be a government responsibility. If, if our society is well connected and people took care of each other to the degree that they should, um, we wouldn't be having this discussion tonight. So look out for your neighbors, look out for your family, look out for your friends, and give them the support they need. Again, to each of the panelists, and we'll start with uh, would you, ahead, David. Would you, answer, would you ask the question again, yeah. please, for us? I'll, I'll pass it down in a moment, but can you hear me okay? You, okay. What would you consider a success as a result of this presentation, and what do you hope to change? Go ahead, Aaron. Oh, starting here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what I consider a success. Well, um, just that we're all here together in this room. Um, communicating and that um, and listening and hearing stories and asking hard questions and answering them and, and looking each other in the eye I think that's a success honestly so I hope that going forward we'll continue to speak with one another and ask questions and be curious um, instead of angry I think that's a better option thank you Aaron David I think the fact that we have had a civil discussion over a very divisive issue this afternoon is a win all by itself. I think the, this, as I said in my uh, opening statement, that this should be a starting point for that conversation. 
I mentioned that we were part of the Homeless Solutions Task Force, and I have seen a real change in communication among the agencies and the people and the and the, the stakeholders and the and the folks affected. Um, that has been really positive. What I want ultimately, and I'm going to get back to esoteric, and I want our streets to feel safe and comfortable again. And that's going to be a combination of actually, you know, changing the, the physical situation here. It's also going to be a, a function of, of attitude. So um, we, I think we can all uh, think of a single person in, in our community that's been homeless for a long time, and nobody was ever afraid, right? Because we understood and we knew. Um, so that's going to be part of it, too. So there's going to be some evolution here in our understanding of what's going on, our communication between and among and not about. Um, that'll be part of it, too. But there, there, are some, there are some enforcement issues that we need to kind of work out as well for the, for the actual problems. So that's what I'm hoping that we get out of this. Mayor Bruce. To, to me, it, number one, the success is how many people came tonight and are still here. And it just shows how much you care about the community. And secondly, it would be that I think each of us heard from someone tonight uh, that we never heard from before, and we heard a perspective that we never heard of from before, and have a little bit better understanding of the situation, perhaps a little more patience, and also an understanding that you know this communi communicating when you're in the same room, and again, for those who want to stay after and talk uh, more one-on-one, -on -one, is so much better than communicating in an on online environment. And if there's a, um, a desire from the community for more open houses on this or other topics. I mean, I, I think having a facilitator here who's not from the community and uh, having a panel is just, it's, it's a great thing to share information and uh, realize that there are other resources out there that you might have not, know, not have known to call before and, and now you know who you can call. Thank you, Amy. Uh, I'm grateful the op for the opportunity to speak. I think um, I guess one of the things that I didn't say that I that I that I want to say is that for me this isn't a, a business versus social services panel, right? Like, like I represent a social service organization, but I'm also very pro business. Um, we as a community have to figure out how to solve this problem together. And uh, two side, there are no two sides to this. There are multiple sides, and there are multiple answers. And uh, fighting with each other is, is not going to help. We have to come up with solutions that work. I'm invested in that. I'm invested in people's businesses being successful. I love this town. I love what you do. This is you know, one of the most wonderful places to live. And if we can have these kinds of conversations, I really think we can, I, I really think that we can solve some of these issues. Thank you. Viviana? Yeah, um, homelessness, as I mentioned before, has many different faces. But yet it affects all of us. It affects our businesses, our agencies, our families, our hospitals. And we need to keep working, we need, keep, we need to keep talking on finding different solutions because we need more than one solution. We need all sorts of uh, different ideas. So I love being here, hearing and learning from, from the rest of the panel and from you, audience. Thank you. Thank you. 
I think uh, my one takeaway tonight is I don't like going last because the panel took all the good ideas. <laughs> uh, with that being said, though, you know, um, this, this conversation, this topic has been one of the most polarizing I've seen in communities in my 44 years in law enforcement. It doesn't have to be that way. You know, the pendulum has swung. The conversations have changed. But at the end of the day, we're talking about human beings. These are all individuals who are, are father, mother, son, uh, aunt, uncle, some relative, somebody. Many people have fallen down on their luck. Some people are in bad situations, not by choice. Clearly, there are some that behavior does need to be addressed, and we're going to work on that. But uh, the most important thing for me is that um, everybody walks out of here tonight understanding that clearly, just based on the applause of different types of questions, that we all come from different places, we all have our implicit bias, is that we need to listen to each other. Uh, I've had some really good conversations with Teresa Barnes at the Warming Center over the last couple of days. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, we're clearly uh, come from different places. We have different beliefs, what have you, but we have respectful conversations conversations and you know we can we can meet in the middle and understand you know and seek first to understand to be understood philosophy and I think the more we do that the more we're going to work together to solve this problem thank you very much and thank you all for coming um, if we didn't specifically address your question or comment know that we have all of them we'll be giving them to Brett um, as just the city manager in the back of the room they will be um, all taken to City Council um, and also posted on an FAQ on the city livability site. Um, I'd like to ask the mayor to say a few words to close, but also to thank you all for uh, providing a great, and oh, we have some next steps too, so we're gonna do that, so. Uh, thanks again, Allison. Thank you all so much for coming. I think we've all had an opportunity to hear from some people we haven't heard from before, to learn some things we didn't know before. I appreciate all your candor. I appreciate your passion. I appreciate the passion of the folks on the panel and what you do for our community. Um, moving forward, we have a lot to do. Please reach out to anybody on this panel, including me. Come to city council meetings and share your concerns. If you don't feel progress is being made, hey, it's been two months since the forum, I haven't heard anything, come to the city council meeting and yell at me. Uh, I mean that, I, I'm used to that, it's not a problem. Um, we have a lot of big challenges ahead, but if we work together, if we communicate, if we communicate face-to-face -face especially and not on social media, I think we, we can accomplish so much. It's clear that everyone in this room loves our community, loves our town, and wants what's best for it. And I think uh, working together that we're going to achieve great things and we'll really make significant dents in this, in this uh, issue. Thank you. I think... Do you have a couple of next steps that you want to share, or any of you, um, before we, I, I got ahead of myself, but that's okay, we can recover. So go ahead, Chief. So if someone else would like to start while I'm firing this back up, because I do have one slide to share, so. so well, and while, the, while the Chief is, is this on? Okay, while the Chief is firing that up, I would just also add, um, on the city website, we do have uh, a page for this topic, it's called Livability, it's a tab on the city website, and I will uh, ensure that we keep the, um, a link open on there for submitting input uh, beyond tonight. If you have ideas next week uh, based, on, based on tonight's uh, forum, uh, we'll have a link on that Livability page where you can submit your, your ideas and, uh, and I think a lot of you will submit things because I think it's got us thinking about a lot of different areas and um, I'm looking forward to seeing your good ideas.
So um, I'm going to go through this really fast just in the interest of time because I know we only have a few minutes left, but we are working a lot of things. Uh, the mayor touched on it earlier. We're working on some additional ordinances um, to address the behavior. Again, I really need to emphasize we're talking about the behavior of a few individuals. This is not addressing the houseless community in particular. It could be anybody that has, is affecting us in the bad behavior. But we're looking at things to address the complaints that we see, receive on a daily basis. We're looking at, at an updated ordinance that addresses derelict vehicles. We're looking at an ordinance that addresses the camping as we've talked about we are looking at an ordinance that may even include an expulsion zone so somebody has repeated bad behavior and is not getting getting the message can be excluded from a particular area in town um, we're also working on uh, what I'm most proud of and and I really appreciate the council support on this one is the community resource officer position. Council did approve the other night getting a new position for the police department, a police officer position. This position is gonna work solely focused on the, uh, the, the problem we're having in our community, working with the houseless community, not just the enforcement, but also working to get people into resources. They're also gonna be doing some community policing type work as well. They're going to be working very closely with a new uh, crisis outreach worker. I'm not sure the official title from Class of Behavior Health, but they will be embedded with the officer and working together so that they can have a combined approach to responding to many of these calls. This individual will be um, responsible for a lot of the calls that the officers have to handle on a regular basis and they get interrupted and they're not always able to do the follow-up. So we do think this is gonna have a significant impact. Uh, the parks, thank you. Uh, that position has been approved by council. Another position in consideration, of course, this is now very much contingent on the budget, and our budget is already somewhat stressed, so I'm not sure that this is going to happen, but there's definitely discussion, and I know the council's very interested in the position if, if the budget can support it, but this would be a position that would be assigned to the Parks Department that's going to be responsible for us, an additional person to help clean up some of the, um, the garbage that we see in the community, some of the property that's left abandoned, and even work on such things as some of the grocery carts that we're trying to get back to the stores. So little things, little quality of life type things. And when we take a look at all these in totality, we really do feel that we can have an impact on our community. Uh, a couple other programs uh, is just uh, having a group of all the different people from social services and law enforcement and looking at individuals who are our highest utilizers of our services in our community. They continually use the hospital, they continue to have contact with law enforcement and they're in different services and many of them, most of the programs we've tried haven't worked. So getting this group together to brainstorm and taking a look at these top 10 individuals and what can we do to impact their lives to get them on the back on the straight and narrow so they're no longer impacting our services. And we feel that could have an impact as well. Um, lots of other things, I'm not gonna go into details. This presentation will be posted on the livability website that the mayor alluded to. Um, the last real quick takeaway I will share is again, what you can do, uh, the mayor mentioned it earlier, depending on what side of the spectrum you're on, you know, whether you are on the law and order side or you're on the social services side, contact your legislator and let them know what this community needs. That's important because this is where we're getting a lot of the laws that are passed down and we have to deal with and we don't always have the resources that come with it. Most of these are unfunded mandates. And then lastly, I'll just say that um, there's a lot of resources, a lot of good um, entities out in this community are doing a lot of good work. And, and learn more. Come, come talk to us in the police department. You can go on a ride along. You can talk to any of these agencies and either volunteer time, support them financially, do what you need to do. But be involved. Be a voice in the community. 
And uh, let's see, really last, uh, if it hasn't been mentioned already, there are two types of resources that I believe are at the back table. Is that correct, Brett? So there's uh, one, one handout that has a list of what you, know, what you can do. This is a, a we kind of put this together at somewhat the last minute, so it's a beta version, but it's a list of some different things. If you have questions about, you know, if you have someone sleeping in your doorway, here's who you call. If you have a vehicle that's parked on someone's front lawn, you know, here's who to call. It might be code enforcement. So. Um, this list here, Vanna is showing it right now, and uh, we'll, uh, uh, that, that will also be posted on the website, but feel free to grab a copy. There's also the resource guide that Clats of Community Action has available. Uh, I believe they have an online version of that too, so um, these are the resource guides that we give uh, our houseless community, so lots of different things that you can do. There is hope. Don't give up hope. Please believe in us, and uh, we'll get through this together. Thank you. While, while we uh, have you all here, I just want to take a moment to say about, what, five years ago? <laughs> five years ago, we had a uh, vacant police chief position, and we were very fortunate to find a police chief who had been re retired twice in other jurisdictions and agreed to come here temporarily to help us fill a gap until we could find a permanent police chief. And he did such an outstanding job. I don't know if it was our begging or, or, or you and... Diane just liked Astoria, but he agreed to stay on for maybe a year or maybe two. Well, finally, after about five years, um, Chief Jeff Spaulding is doing what he deserves to do, which is taking a well-deserved rest, and in April, he will be retiring, retiring. And we've been so thankful to have, have you here, Chief Jeff Spaulding, so thank you for what you've done for our community. Thank you, everyone. We're um, officially adjourned, and I'll um, save the chief. So thank you, everyone, for uh, participating. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. <laughs>